We continue the Shir and Navi. Story and Navi, if you recall, was the case where the king of the ten tribes, Baruch Yisrael, called upon the king of the two tribes, Baruch Yisrael called upon Malach Yehuda, to join him in battle against the king of Moab. King of the ten tribes was Yehoram, the son of Achav. He was an evil king, just as Achav was. He called upon Yehoshaphat, who was a good king, to join him in battle. And to make certain that they would win the battle, they also enlisted the aid of the king of Edom. Now, these three kings, king of Israel, Yehuda, and Edom, went into battle against the king of Moab, and they were in danger of losing the battle before it started. Because there was a shortage of water, they finally came before Elisha Hanavi, pleaded with him for aid. He performed a miracle, for the land was filled with water, they were saved, they went into battle against the king of Moab, they destroyed, devastated his army, his land. Finally, the king of Moab himself got together his last 700 fighting men and tried to break into the land of Edom, at least to get revenge from Edom, who was also an Arab country, for joining the side of the Jews. In this case, he failed. The 700 men were wiped out. And so we come to what is just about the end of the story. Yet the story ends with a strange twist. The Gemara says there are three versions of what took place. The same act took place, but the versions are as to what was the kavona, what were the intentions in this case. King of Moab, one last desperate move, according to the first version, captured the eldest son of the king of Edom. He took him quickly to the top of the wall, that city, the city that was being attacked by these three kings. On top of that wall, he slaughtered this son and burnt him as a sacrifice offering to his idol. Now, when this happened, there was a tremendous battle that is a hatred that broke out between the king of Edom and the Jews because he felt that the other two kings were responsible for the loss of his son. They had misled him into a battle that was no doing of his own. Here he lost his son. He had seen his own son, his eldest son, being killed by the king of Moab. And so in this ensuing argument, because there was no longer unity among these three kings, they were actually forced to withdraw, to return. And so the king of Moab escaped. This is the first version very few agree upon this version. What is more agreed by the Madrashim is that this was not the son of Edom. The king of Moab took his own son to the top of the wall, and there, according to the first version, as in a last-ditch stand, he turned to pray to his idol and offered his own son as a sacrifice to this idol. He slaughtered him, Shita, and then he burnt him as complete sacrifice, and this brought about an anger from heaven. In heaven there was a fury directed against the Jews. Why? This was a kitruk. The Satan in heaven raised the charge that why should the Jews be victorious in this battle against 
the king of Moab. The king of Moab's act only brought to light the fact that the Jews were just as guilty in idol worship as the king of Moab was. Now, since these were just as guilty as those, why should Hashem give victory to the Jews? This claim was so powerful a one that the Jews were forced to retreat. They were forced to retreat in shame. It was obvious there was anger from heaven. There was some signs from heaven that Hashem was angry with them. They were forced to retreat in shame and embarrassment in the knowledge that they were not worthy of victory. Third version, and most accepted by the rabbis of the Midrashim, is that the king of Moab still retained a number of his elders, his advisors. They were not good for battle, but they were good for advice. He turned to them and asked their advice. The question was, what makes the Jews so successful? What reason do they succeed in these wars? Why do they succeed in their undertakings against a world that is set upon their extermination? All times, all the empires of the world set their mind, their actions against the Jews as a people and as a nation. Yet throughout all this, the empires fade away and the Jews remain. What gives them this power and this success? The advisors told them that the Jews are obedient to Hashem. And he asked, but we don't see that. We see that the Jews rebel. We can see that the Jews have turned away from Hashem and are idol worshippers. They answered the Jews base their claim to the deeds of their forefathers. They had forefathers that were so holy and so devoted in the worship of Hashem that their good deeds, their merits, were enough to help the Jews throughout all future generations. The king asked them, what did their forefathers do that was so outstanding, enough to cover the Jews to this day and to assure them victory? They said they had the first father of the Jews, <coughs> who willingly brought his own son as a sacrifice to Hashem. The king of Moab said, if that's what gives them victory, then I too will do so. I will offer my son as a sacrifice, not to the idols, but to Hashem also. Not only will I offer him, but I will actually sacrifice him more than Avraham Avinu did. This he proceeded to do. He learned the rules about the different types of sacrifices. We have Kodshim Kalim, Kodshim Kodeshim. There are sacrifices that are not considered as holy. A regular type of Karban, where the meat of the Karban is partially sacrificed on the Mizbech, on the altar, and partially eaten by the Kohanim, and by the Israel who brings the Karban. There's Kodshim Kodeshim, some where it is divided between the Mizbeach to Hashem and between the Kohanim. There is the Korban Allah, the greatest of all the sacrifices that is complete, Kulay Kolil, completely burned on the Mizbeach to Hashem. No trace of that meat is to be eaten by anyone. The king said, I will offer my son as a Korban Allah, the holiest sacrifice to Hashem. He did this, he sacrificed, he slaughtered his son, and he had his son consumed in fire completely with the kavona. His intentions were to serve Hashem with this. This brought about an anger from above, even more so than before, according to the other versions, because 
it meant that he was a sechus on the part of a goy, a non-Jew, a non-believer, who was willing to go to such an extent in serving Hashem, whereas the Jews who should have been loyal, who did come from, who did descend from such Kedoshim, and they turn against Hashem, this brought about an anger which could have destroyed the Jews then. And therefore the Jews quickly retreated, returned to their land, and that's how the story came to an end. This is how the king of Moab himself was saved. And of course, there were no further confrontations, at least not for a long time, between these countries. Again, the purpose of this story primarily was to relate the powers of Elisha Hanavi. Because here the Navi is telling us, showing us how Elisha Hanavi inherited these powers from Elia Hanavi in a double potency. The number of miracles performed by Elia Hanavi was eight. Here the Torah tells us of the 16 miracles performed by Elisha Hanavi. The Navi tells us this in order. The next case told to us refers to a woman who was the wife of Ovadia Hanavi. Uh, during the days of Achav, while Achav was king, if you can recall that far back, the prophets, the Nevi'im, were all killed by Achav's wife, except Ovadia Hanavi, who stayed in the palace and who privately alone, secretly saved the lives of a number of Nevi'im, hid them out in caves, and brought them food, brought them oil to, for light, and food to sustain them. This took a lot of money. It was expensive. Achav's own son, Yehoram, helped to provide this money, not too much out of the goodness of his heart, but for the sake of profit. He lent money to Ovadia to be able to purchase the necessities, but he lent it at a high rate of interest. That's called ribis, and this is one of the very serious crimes mentioned in the Teda. The crime of ribis is so great, the Gemara says that one who lends money at interest is considered a sinner of such magnitude that for one thing, he will not even rise at Tchiyas HaMesim. Secondly, he is considered a kofer. The one who is an atheist disbelieves in Hashem, disbelieves in Meshach Rabbeinu or the Torah. That's why we can understand where after this, later on, Hashem commanded Yehu, the future king, to kill Yehoram. <coughs> to kill him because he deserved death for this sin of lending money and interest. It's a very vital din each person should be aware of because there are many people who are trapped into this unknowingly. How serious the Easter of Ribas is, just to cite an example, according to the Shulchan Aruch, if a person says, I am interested in raising money for tzedakah, what's better than that? Money for tzedakah that goes to Eretz Yisrael, that goes to Tamidei Chachamim, to Anim, to the poor, the highest possible tzedakah in existence. And he says, I will lend you money, I will lend you a hundred dollars at interest. I don't want the interest. Chas I'll give you a hundred dollars. Return the hundred dollars to me after six months and give interest of ten percent, ten dollars, not to me, but to Stucker, but to this important Stucker. 
He then says in your day that this is considered ribis, this is considered interest, and that it is forbidden just as badly as though he took the money himself. It then goes further. What if a person says, I want to raise money for Stucker so badly that I want others to give besides myself? Now, I will lend you $100 on condition that you pay back $200. Not to me. Give my 100 plus your 100 to Stucker. I get nothing, not even my own money back. Again, the din says this is considered 100% ribbis. No matter what the cause is, no matter how high the mitzvah is, it is a mitzvah habor baveda. Mitzvah that comes through sin is still considered sin. Especially when the sin is that serious a one of ribbis, it should be avoided at all costs. And so a person should be careful during his lifetime that when he does borrow money, especially when he lends money, to see that there's no trace of interest. The only time that ribbis is permissible is when one deals in loans with Goyim. To lend money, borrow with interest to a Goy is permissible. Now, in this case, as we said, he had lent money for a period of time. He paid back at a certain time. What happened now was that the interest had accumulated to such an extent, Ovadia himself, who was a very holy tzaddik and navi, was nostalgic, had passed away, and now the collector came to Avadya's wife demanding payment. She did not have any money at all to repay. And the collector said, either you pay or we take something else instead. What is that something else? We take your two sons. As simple as that. Either your two sons or the money. Imagine a mother having two sons and having them taken away. What could she do in a case like this? Where could she go for assistance? Naturally, she went to the cemetery, seeking some type of contact with her husband. But obviously, apparently, there was no trace, no markings there. She went crying on the cemetery, crying out, I am looking for my husband. I am looking for Yerei Hashem. The says he was a Yerei Hashem. He feared Hashem. Zayda Kodesh says that she cried out, Yirei Hashem, Yirei Hashem, where are you? Her cry was so heart-rending that a voice came from heaven, the reply, and said, you're at the gates of Ganadin. Whom do you seek? And she said, I seek the Yirei Hashem. The voice responded, there are four here who have that title, Yirei Hashem. Four who deserve to earn that title. Those four are Abraham Ovinu, Pasuk says, Gideli Kemato, Yesef HaTzadik, Eov, Eov it says, also then you have Yira, Yira Hashem, and Ovadia. Which one are you seeking? Uh, she said, I'm seeking the only one where it says, Yireh Hashem Mi'ayit. Very much God-fearing. And so, she heard the voice of her husband reply now, and he said, I cannot help you from where I am. And she said, you cannot forsake me at a time like this. It's your sons. He said, I cannot help you, though Though the fact is that no one on earth can really exist without the help of tzaddikim in heaven. But as long as there is a tzaddik on earth, great enough to perform the necessary assistance, then there will be no further help from heaven. 
go to Elisha Hanavi, the loyal Talmud student of Elianavi. He can and will help you. He can help you with a miracle of oil, because I provided oil for the Nevi'im, these prophets in this cave, and he will help you through oil to repay this good deed of mine. So she came to Elisha Hanavi, crying to him. This is how the Pasuk begins in the Navi. All that we said till now about the stories in the Gemara and the Zayda Kodesh. Came crying and said, My husband has passed away. You know that he was Yireh Hashem. And the collector has come to take my two children as slaves. Elisha answered, Tell me, what do you have in your home? What do you possess? She replied, I have only one small vial of oil. Tiny container of oil, nothing else. No money, no food, there's still a famine. He said to her, fine, as long as you have something, then we can't perform a miracle. You must have something, no matter how tiny, a yish, something that exists, in order to broaden that, expand that into a miracle. You can't have a miracle from nothing. Yish may ayin, something from nothing, cannot come except the time of creation, or in very rare and unusual cases. In this case, if you have a drop of oil, we can have the miracle on the soil. The same as the nests of Hanukkah too. There was a small pacha shemen. There was a room for a miracle to take place. Something for the miracle to rest upon and to expand from there. And so he told it, go out to your neighbors, seek out in your own home as many vessels, as many containers, as many jugs, jars, barrels, everything you can find. Get all the empty ones into your house, all of it you have, and as much as, as many as you can borrow from your neighbors. Every kind, including broken ones, even. So, she filled her home with these vessels, and he said to her, close the door now, lock the door, no one should witness this, and have your children, your sons, bring these containers before you, and pour from this vial of oil. Continue pouring until you've completed all the containers that you have there. She did this, she continued to pour into these containers until the time came when she called for more. She said, pouring, where is another container? They told her there is no further container. And at that moment, the oil stopped pouring. Well, the broken vessels too, as part of the miracle, became repaired. They too contained this oil. There was enough oil here for her to sell, to repay the debt, and to live on the rest in comfort for an indeterminable time. He then says that there's one additional item, a very interesting point that we learn from this case. Question halacha. We know that above all else, the first thought a person should have is to eat kosher, to partake of only that which is legal and not illegal. If food is unkosher, you cannot eat it. If money is unkosher, you cannot have any pleasure from it. Money that is stolen is unkosher money. If money is earned legally, it is still unkosher until that money is legalized the same as food. You can have food, that is meat. It comes from a kosher animal. The animal was slaughtered kosher. There's nothing wrong with the meat, and yet it cannot be eaten until 
that is first salted to remove the blood. There is an ingredient in meat that is unkosher that must be removed because that's called nefesh, the life which cannot be eaten. The blood is removed through salting. It's called malicha. We salt the meat in order to remove the blood from it. But then the meat can be cooked and eaten. The same thing holds true with money. The money must be salted in order to remove the unkosher ingredient. Until that time, you may have worked hard, you may have toiled many hours to earn these few dollars. The money still cannot be used for any purpose at all until you kosher the money by removing the stucca part of it, known as miser. You must take a tenth of that money first, give it to stucca, the rest of the money then becomes chulen, it's permissible for you to use as you please. Of course, to buy things that are legal too. But you can then use it for yourself, for your own physical needs. First, take care of the spiritual, take off that 10%. That's the blood, that's the essence, the life of that money. This applies to money that is earned, money that you work for, money that you find you did not work for, money that was inherited, or money that you received as a gift. In all these cases, there is the obligation, the requirement to give myself. Here the question in Din arises, what about money or anything. Meiser is not just on money. The person earns barrels of wheat. He's paid with wheat. That's his earnings. He must give 10% of that those barrels. A person is a farmer. The field produces so much crops, he must give 10% of those crops of stucca. A person is, has cattle, he must give 10% of those cattle as they produce the stucca too. In this case, what if a person acquires a certain amount of wealth not through work, not through normal means, and not through natural means, but through a miracle. He has acquired wealth. It's something new to him. Must he give meiser on this item that he got through a miracle? The din says in this case, this is a lesson that Elisha Ravi taught, there is no meiser necessary, because that which is given from heaven is perfect and kosher. Yolanda says that if meat should fall from heaven, we've had that case before, a piece of meat falls from heaven, we ask no questions about that meat. It is definitely kosher. Ein dover tome yored menashemayim. Nothing tome impure or unkosher comes down from heaven. Nothing incomplete comes down from heaven in the form of a miracle. So the money that came from heaven, that means any miracle that has occurred for the sake of a person, that miracle is perfection. And therefore, whatever is gained there can be used in its entirety without the necessity of giving miser of it. It's an interesting point, and we have to know it. If we expect to enjoy miracles, we're required to know these dinners, these laws about them. Of course, we are looking forward to miracles, especially which we expect will take place tonight. This was the end of this miracle. We come now to one of the major miracles, one of the outstanding ones, where we find Elisha Hanavi paralleling the most outstanding miracle performed by Eliyahu Hanavi. came to the home of a woman who was called a great, important woman. 
she was the mother of Ado Hanavi. Ado Hanavi was the Navi who had approached Yeravim Benavot, originally reprimanded him. Ado Hanavi was that Navi who had been consumed, eaten by a lion. So she had suffered the loss of her child, that is, her son. Her son was still her only child, and especially a son that was that important. Above all, though, she appreciated and understood the value of a Talmud Chacham, the value of a Tzaddik. And so when Elisha Navi came to her town, she implored him to stay at her home, because the mitzvah of Achnosa Sayachim, to welcome a guest with true hospitality, is one of the outstanding mitzvahs of Gnilas Chesed, mitzvah which Avramino is so famous for. Especially to have an Oreach Tamat Chacham, a tzaddik eaten in one's home, that is the greatest bracha possible. So he agreed to stay there, and passing by there, he would come and stay at her home. And then one day she said to her husband, I recognize that this tzaddik is a heavenly person. Therefore, let us build a special room for him. He can have his private room there with his own table, chair, candle, and bed. That's mita, shulchan, kisei, ner. First letters are mishkan, like a base of mikdash for the tzaddik. Let's make this for him so that we can have the honor of having this holy tzaddik, like the shechina, in our home. Yimara says, she said, I recognize that he is a heavenly person. Yimara asks, how did this woman recognize he's heavenly? Yimara answers two things. One, she found that in the morning his bed was pure. It wasn't contaminated. Secondly, she noticed that when he ate, the flies never attacked his plate, his food. There was never a fly over his food. Even the flies, the insects, respected him. Zayrekodesh says it's difficult to accept that. The words in the Gemara that his bed was not contaminated, this happens to many tzaddikim. That is pure. What then? That wouldn't be what she detected. What she detected was that in the morning, whereas usually a person's bed, after having lain in it overnight, is not is no longer fresh, instead of being stale, instead of having an acrid odor, or any kind of an odor, she detected, she felt the aroma of Gan Eden there, the special reach of Gan Eden. This was obvious that he was a heavenly person. The great tzaddikim, during their sleep, when an Ishamah goes up to heaven to Gan Eden, they still maintain a contact between the nefesh in the body and the Ishamah that rises up. There is a direct contact so that they physically achieve, they acquire some of that Kedusha that the Neshama acquires during the night in Gan Eden, and some of it remains on earth with them. And this she detected in making his bed. Of course, there was a reason for it. As Rizal says, Benazal brings that one of the top mitzvahs possible, Nachnosas Archim, besides giving food and drink and a place to sleep and accompanying the person afterwards, one of the top mitzvahs possible is making the bed for the Oreach. So that the great Sadiqim would never allow a guest to make his own bed. They would battle for that right. The men who would never make a bed for themselves, but for a guest, 
they would be sure to do it. This woman was so great at tzaddikis that she knew this fact, and therefore she tended to making the bed, and that's how she detected this Leach of Gereden. This she reported to her husband, and they decided to serve Elisha Hanavi with a proper shimush. Remember that the Gemara says that shimush, serving a tzaddik, is far greater than learning tzaddik from a tzaddik. What made Elisha Hanavi so great, superior to all other Nevi'im, the fact that he served Elia Hanavi physically. He poured water for him. And this she acknowledged, this she accepted, this she appreciated. And so she went about serving Elisha Hanavi to the best of her ability. Elisha Hanavi accepted this with gratitude. And he felt indebted to her. He felt that she deserved some type of payment. And so he decided to call her and to let her state a price. Let her ask whatever she wanted. Let her make her own wish. He called upon her. She came before him. And he said, is there something I can do for you? First, I have special pull influence with the king. Would you want me to speak to the king on your behalf? For what? Let's say to relieve you of taxes. For any problem you may have, you want me to speak to the king on your behalf? If so, I will do so. And she replied, no, it is not necessary. I am among my people. I don't need your assistance. Zayda Kodesh says, stop, analyze it, think, and be zochet to accept the lesson intended by these words. What was Elisha Hanavi's offer? Greatest possible offer. You want me to speak to the king? He didn't need the king of the Jews. You want me to speak to the king, to Hashem, the daven to Hashem for you, as the tefillah of a tzaddik, to help you in anything you need, to help you in what you may need most. Perhaps you feel that whatever you're praying for, your tefillah is unworthy. So I will take over and daven for you. As Lady Kodesh says, she replied, I know they did. I know the fact that my tefillah is very worthy. I may be unworthy myself, but my tefillah is very, very valuable. Why is it valuable? Because ami, because I never daven myself. I never daven biachidus. Person who davens alone, that tefillah could be dissected in heaven, inspected and discarded, tossed aside. But the seich ami, the person davens together with a minion, b'tzibur, person davens b'tzibur, the Israeli Kodesh says, the Gemara says that, Henkel Kabbalah Hashem, the heavens will never reject a tefillah that comes from minion, b'tzibur. Because rejecting it means din. There is harshness, there is judgment. The tzibur, the tefillah, is always accepted by Rachman. Called per amcho Yisrael, ami, the nation, the minion together is berachamim. Berachamim is begimatio b'tzibur. When there is a tzibur davening, it may consist of all types. The word tzibur itself, tzadik beiz vavrej, stands for tzadikim, beninim, urishoyim. A combination of all three types. When you have this combination... Surely the tefillah of tzaddikim is valuable, but the rishonim attached to them because they're in the same minion. The tefillah goes right through; it slides, glides right through the gates of heaven, accepted at the same level 
put the same ava, the same value attached to it as the tefillah of the tzaddikim. This was the response, the reply of this tzaddikis. She said, my tefillah is b'tzibur. If I was davening alone, of course I'd need help. But I have bitachon, I have emunah, in the words of the Torah, that a tefillah b'tzibur is never refused, is never rejected. So as far as tefillah goes, I'm very thankful for your offer, but I'm very proud to say that though I am a woman, and according to some dinim, some opinions, a woman may be excused from tefillah to an extent, I have taken upon myself the obligation of davening constantly b'tzibur. Now, Elisha Levy accepted this point. He felt it was right. And so he didn't pursue this topic any further. Rather, he asked his servant, his Talmud, his student, Gehazi, to find out, perhaps he could see, detect what she is lacking, what she needs most. Gehazi replied, yes, I have studied her case. I find that she does not have a son. She lost her son prior to this. She has no son. Her husband is old, and there is very little hope of her giving birth to a son in the future. If you can bless her with a son, she'd ask for nothing more in life. So, Elisha told Gerzi to summon her. She stood before him, and he said to her, I give you this assurance. Exactly at the appointed time from now, you are going to be hugging a son point of time means exactly nine months from today you'll be hugging a son. Note the word you'll be hugging. Chavekes ben, meaning that son will be called Chavakuk. Chavakuk Hanavi to take the place of your first son who was a Navi. This one will be greater. We'll get to the point later on as Lady Kodesh tells us why Chavakuk Hanavi. A very deep explanation of that in reference to the incident that took place, if we have time for it. And so she pleaded with him, and she said, I am only your maid. I beg of you, do not make fun of me. Do not say things that are untrue to me. If you mean this sincerely, fine. But sincerely means that I'm going to have one that will give me happiness and not heartbreak. She could foresee that something this good couldn't really turn out too well. could not be an easy thing to acquire. She left. She became pregnant immediately, just as Elisha Navi had prophesied. And exactly nine months later, she gave birth to fulfill the prediction of Elisha Navi. The child grew up. As the infant grew, when he was a small child, he went out to the fields with his father. While in the fields, one day, there's a Tesis in Yevomis, interestingly, who speaks about this. And Tesis says there that, the Pusik says that while in the fields, this child began to cry to his father, my head, my head, I have a deep ache in my head. Tesis says this was due to the sun baking down on this child's head. This was the cause of it, direct cause, of course. Actually, there was a deeper cause behind it. And the child was taken, carried by one of the servants to the house. The father told him, bring him to his mother. He was brought to the mother. The mother held him on her lap. That was in the morning until the afternoon. And in this short span, 
a child died. Very silently, she took the child, brought him upstairs to Elisha Levi's room, and she placed him, she laid his child on the bed of Elisha Hanavi. She locked the door, and she went out. She called her husband, and she asked him, send me one of the boys with a mule. I'm going to visit the heavenly tzaddik Elisha Hanavi, and then I shall return. Her husband asked her, why are you going to visit him? Today is neither Rosh Chodesh or Yom Tov. Megimara says, this proves that it is the duty of a Talmud, Chayiv Vadon, duty of a Talmud to visit, to see, to visit or to see the face of his Rebbe on Yom Tov and on Rosh Chodesh. Now, Megimara says Yom Tov. And it's obvious from this sentence that when he added Rosh Chodesh, it's because he was talking to his wife. The day of Rosh Chodesh is a holiday, especially a gifted holiday by Hashem to women. A holiday celebrated by women specifically in recognition of their great deed during the time of the sin of the golden calf, when only men partook in the sin, and women abstained. As a reward for this, Hashem gave the women this holiday of Rosh Chodesh. So, the husband said to his wife, why are you going now? It's neither Rosh Chodesh or Yom Tov, which means there's no reason for you to have to visit the Tzarek, if that was the reason for going. And she said, it's all right, it's shalom, it's peace, it will be okay. So she traveled to Elisha Hanavi, and he saw from a distance Gechazi, the servant, go out and see what she wants. Ask her. Is everything all right with her, with her husband, with the child? He asked her, and she said, everything is all right. Meaning, I will not speak to you. I want to speak to Elisha Navi. She came to Elisha Navi, and she fell before his feet and held on to his legs. Gechazi ran forward to push her aside because it was not respectful for her to grasp the legs of the Sadiq. She let go, but Elisha Navi said to Gechazi, don't hurt her, because something has happened, something sad has occurred, she's very bitter about something, and for some reason Hashem has hidden from me what it is. Let her explain herself. And then she spoke up and she asked Elisha Hanavi, when you summoned me the first time, did I ask anything of you? Did I ask you for a son? I pleaded with you, do not make jest of me, because it's too big a miracle for me to deserve. Do not make just means, don't give me a son and then take him away. If you intend to give a son, let him be one that will live. Elisha Levi said to Gechazi, quickly, take my stick, my cane, the stick with which miracles can be performed, go directly to the house of this woman. If anyone stops you, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply, do not speak, do not say one word, you get to the house. Take this stick. Place it on top of the child, and he will come back to life. The mother of the child said, I will not leave you. I'm going with you. I want to see that nothing wrong occurs. So Gechzi went before them. He ran quickly. He placed the stick on top of the child. There was no sound. Nothing at all happened. He went back, turned back to Elisha and told him that the child did not 
awaken. He did not arise. Mishnah came to the house. He found the child was dead, lying on his bed. He closed the door. Now, the Gemara says clearly that the child, of course, should have come to life by just placing the stick upon him. We see here the beginning of the end for Gechazi. Because Gechazi, who had seen the deeds of his master, Lishanavi so many times, now proved himself with possessing a lack of faith. For one thing, he did not believe in the powers of Chiesa Mason, the part of his master, part of his Rebbe. Secondly, he refused to obey the orders. What stopped this miracle from materializing was the fact that Gechazi, on his way to this home, instead of obeying the orders of Elisha Navi, he greeted people and told them, I'm carrying a stick that's going to bring a child to life. He kept on publicizing this fact, which of course nullified the possible effects of the stick, or nullified the power that was, he was bestowed with by Elisha Navi. Of course, we'll have more about Gechazi in the future, but this was the first step, his first Yerida, first downward step. Elishalavi came, closed the door, beget Dab Dashem, and he then lay on this child, covered him with his mouth, and breathed into him, placing his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, breathed the breath of life into him. This was not mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, no doctor can perform this miracle, as some doctors claim, by massaging the heart, by mouth to mouth, they can bring back a person who had died. We've mentioned many times that a doctor could massage the foot and get as much results as massaging the heart if a person actually died. In those cases where they massage a heart, the person begins breathing again, it's only because that person was alive and did not die. These doctors have no power to rise up to heaven and to bring back the soul that's already there. It is only a tzaddik like Eliyahu Elisha Navi, or the rabbis of the Gemara who gifted with this miracle power. So by breathing his, his own kedusha into him, he brought the life back into this child. He rose up, walked to and fro, and then the child sneezed seven times. He opened his eyes. The woman was summoned. He told her, here is your son. She picked up her son and left with a deeper strategy. Of course, the, the item of sneezing is the symbol that the neshama, the neshama is the neshima, the breath. The kedusha comes from the chotem, Rabbeinazal speaks about the nukva de pardashka, that the breath of life is the place of the neshama, and this refers to a tzaddik. The power of Mashiach is Nukva de Badashka, which means the Tfilah, Kayach of Tfilah, that's the Klezayin of Mashiach, the same as Yaakov Inu said, I won my battles, Becharbi of Ekashti, Becharbi of Bakoshosi, with Tzeluso, Biuso, with Tfilah, and pleading with Hashem. This Kayach of Tfilah is the Kayach of the Tzadikimus, and that's how all miracles are performed by these Tzadikim. This was the miracle performed by Elisha Navi to equal that of Elia Navi and bring a nice, a dead person to life. We'll have further miracles once combined with this,
explain the statement in the Gemara about the Pishnah and the double powers of Elisha Hanavi. Above all, note that in all cases, everything is dependent upon, contingent upon, the Yamuna and the Tzadikimus. If the Yamuna is there, a person deserves to receive these miracles from the Tzadikimitim. Therefore, we should be Zohar first to possess this true Amuna in Sadikim, true Amuna in the Tadak Daisha, and will merit the seeing the Tzadik that we are waiting for, the coming of Mashiach at Kano, Vinyan Beis Amikdash, Amen, Vinyan.